0: Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. Hey everyone, Annie here, and uh, I'm with my three-month-old co-host, who is being quiet right now, but um, she may uh, have something to say shortly. And uh, because I am a full-time mom, in addition to... Running school for the dogs, and in addition to doing this podcast, I am trying to be more efficient in how I do everything. <laughs> um, because although I have seven hands and four brains, uh, it's uh, it's hard to get it all done. So for that reason, I am challenging myself today to keep this episode short and. Um, The thing I want to talk about today is operant conditioning, which really has four major parts. So I decided to see if I could describe each of those parts in two and a half minutes, uh, making all of operant conditioning something that can be contained in 10 minutes. And uh, let's see, let's see if I can do it. But first, what is operant conditioning and why do I want to talk about it? Well, there are basically two ways that all animals learn. There's two kinds of conditioning. Conditioning is a term that's synonymous with learning. And those two ways of learning are operant conditioning and classical conditioning. And if you've listened to this podcast before, uh, you've heard me talk about these two kinds of learning. Uh, I think that they're very important to understand when you're trying to think about how your dog is learning, what you're trying to train him or learning what you're not trying to train him and I am well aware that most dog trainers don't talk about the science of dog training as much as they talk about specific problems and how to solve those problems and while the trainer may or may not understand these two kinds of conditioning is something that you as the person who's hiring the dog trainer may never know and I was thinking about this um, last weekend I went to clicker expo with a bunch of people on my staff clicker expo is uh, held three times a year twice in the states once in Europe and it's like the major gathering of people who are geeky about dog training it's run by um, the same people who run the Karen Pryor Academy which is the dog training school i graduated from some of the best trainers in the world speak at at clicker expo there are labs there's a trade show and it's just a a wonderful gathering place of uh, positive reinforcement trainers where they do talk a lot about things like operant conditioning anyway at the end of one panel i went to i heard a woman Uh, talking to someone and she said you know all of this conversation about the science is so interesting and so fascinating but my boss would kill me would kill me if I ever tried to explain this kind of science to my clients their eyes would just roll into the back of their heads and they wouldn't pay attention to anything that I'm saying so I guess the real trick is trying to figure out how to communicate this stuff to people without letting them know that there's science involved now I totally get that because The word science is scary to a lot of people. And if science or topics relating to science aren't communicated in the right way and aren't made to be applicable to your life, I definitely know that, you know, your brain can turn off. I had science class from, what, like fifth grade through twelfth grade, and I learned pretty much nothing, which is... Uh, scary and embarrassing, but true. I learned, um, I mean, there are certain words I remember. Xylem and phloem have something to do with celery. Um, the periodic table is a thing. Newton was a guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm exaggerating, but really only slightly. I, I, it's, it's amazing how little I took away considering all the hours that I spent in science classes in a very good grade school. Honestly the the main thing I remember about all of the science classes I ever took was once in like fifth or sixth grade there was this girl named Nina who sat behind me and did origami the whole class. For some reason she got like a special dispensation and she was allowed to do origami and I was I always like to draw and I would like doodle during class and I was always getting into trouble for doodling but she was somehow allowed to do origami and one day in <laughs> middle school science class I just lost it and I turned around and started yelling at her because I just like couldn't deal with the injustice and that's uh, my main memory of all those years of science anyway now of course I think science is the coolest thing I don't think I'm any good at science, but whereas I used to think I'm not good at science and therefore I'm just gonna ignore science, now I think, uh, you know what, even the best scientists in the world are still figuring things out and probably feel like they're not that good at science because science is not one thing, it's kinda everything. And the science of behavior to me, is the most relatable science because we are all animals who are behaving all the time. And our ability to learn relates to our ability to adapt to different environments, and uh, which which certainly has to do with learning and is why we've been such a successful species and why dogs have been such successful species. And it's a big reason why... Dogs and humans are two of the only species that have ever existed that aren't yet extinct. Uh, I did an early episode called Our Canine Cousins, uh, which I will link to in the show notes, about all the ways that humans and dogs are exactly alike, and that is one of the ways in which we are alike. 99% of all species who have existed since there has been life on Earth have gone extinct humans and dogs are in this tiny club of species that are still around and uh, i would certainly argue that our ability to learn really well thanks to operant conditioning is a major reason why we are still here so anyway yes science is hard science is complicated but I think that this uh, little bit of science called operant conditioning is surprisingly understandable because it's something that we are all experiencing pretty much all the time. And, you know, my mom, all growing up, she used to say, I don't really care what you're learning. I just want you to, I just want at school, I want them to be teaching you to learn how to learn. And recently I actually said to her, you know, you, you were always talking about wanting me to learn how to learn, but... Actually, that's the one thing that kids don't have to learn. We think about learning as something that happens in school, in a classroom, when you're taking a test or reading a book. But really, learning is happening every moment, every day. And from the time that you're born, you're learning. Uh, So I said to her, you know, I... The one thing that they didn't have to teach me at school was to learn how to learn. Actually, maybe the one thing that they did teach me at school was to to not want to learn, to want to go home and veg out in front of uh, Save by the Bell and play Nintendo. But you know what? Those, Those things involved learning as well. Anyway, I really believe if you can get your head around operating conditioning, which I'm about to explain. Uh, It can really help you think about why your dog is doing what your dog is doing, and uh, it can help you think about why you do what you do and why you don't do the things you don't do. Okay, just a little quick background on operant conditioning. Operant conditioning has always existed, but it was codified by B.F. Skinner uh, in the mid-1900s. I've talked about BF Skinner many times before on this podcast, I actually interviewed his daughter last summer, and um, he was a psychology professor at Harvard, among other places, and he might be best known for a lot of the work that he did with pigeons and rats, but he was also a dog trainer, he (laughs) did some fun training with his dog, which I mentioned in the podcast with his daughter, and... um, At the end of the day, though, his main concern was training humans, and when you talk about training humans, it sort of has a nefarious ring to it, but he wasn't evil at all. He really felt that we could lasso what we know about human behavior and how all animals learn in order to make people happier, make uh, the earth a better place. He mostly wrote nonfiction, but he wrote a, uh, a really interesting novel called Walden 2, which is about a utopia that is run uh, basically by a behaviorist. And um, when it came out, it was referred to as fascism without tears. And uh, there were also re- reviewers who said it was kind of, as if uh, his idea was to treat all people as if they were dogs in a training class. And although I think that that was sort of a a criticism of the book, I actually think it's kind of accurate. It's like, what would the world look like if it was um, run by positive reinforcement dog trainers or applied behavior analysis? Okay, so... Proper conditioning is really just a fancy term for learning by consequence, and it's often uh, taught by talking about it in terms of four quadrants, which, if you're a visual learner, I think can be helpful. I think about it as a sort of picture like an xy-axis with the positive stuff, being above the x-axis, and the negative stuff being below the y-axis. Now, when we talk about positive reinforcement, which is part of operant conditioning, the positive, as uh, I've mentioned before on this podcast, does not mean happiness, smiley faces, heart, stars, and flowers. It's positive as in mathematically positive, so that's why we're putting it on that part of the axis. Negative is gonna mean taking something away Uh, which is why it's on the bottom part of the axis. Now, reinforcement is going to be on the right side of the y-axis and punishment is going to be on the left side of the y-axis. Reinforcement, when we're talking about operant conditioning, simply means encouragement. If a behavior is reinforced, it means it's more likely to happen again and punishment is just the opposite. It means discouragement. If a behavior is punished, it means it's less likely to happen again. Now, simply stated, every time you behave in any way, there is some kind of consequence, and that consequence falls into one of these four quadrants. Now, just to be clear, I should say that there is a fifth element to all of this, which is called extinction which is kind of when nothing happens. So kind of like every time you do something, your behavior is either reinforced, in which case it's more likely to happen again in the future, or it's punished, in which case it's less likely to happen again in the future, or it's extinguished, which basically means your behavior has no effect. Nothing happens. There is no consequence. And there are behavior nerds who disagree with describing operant conditioning in terms of quadrants because there's four quadrants, there really is no place there to uh, explain extinction, which is very important, but it's also kind of complicated. I think I don't think I really appreciated or fully understood extinction (laughs) until I started training chickens which I did four or five years ago. Up until that point, I think I got the basic idea, but I didn't appreciate how powerful and interesting extinction is. But because I am trying to keep this podcast episode short and not overcomplicate things, I'm going to save the topic of extinction for another episode. And... uh, Instead, just focus on the four, let's call them quadrants of operant conditioning, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, and negative punishment. So we're gonna start with positive reinforcement. I'm setting my timer here for two and a half minutes. Okay, so. Positive means we're adding something to the equation. Reinforcement means that we're encouraging the likelihood that a behavior is going to happen again. And positive reinforcement is affecting you all the time. In fact, if you think about everything that you did today, if it was something that you have ever done before that means most likely it was reinforced some in some way and if it was positively reinforced that means you did it because it yielded something good something good happened so if you go to work and then you get paid the money is a thing that's added to the equation and it encourages the likelihood that you are going to keep going to work um dogs are positively reinforced by food, of course, we use a lot of food in training, but really anything that your dog likes could be used uh, to reinforce a behavior. Uh, Attention, the opportunity to go for a walk, to chase a ball, and an important thing to remember about positive reinforcement, I think, is that a lot of the times when we're trying to discourage a behavior, we end up positively reinforcing a dog uh, with attention. Right? So your dog jumps up on you, you say, no, don't do that. Well, you know your attention might have been positively reinforcing to the dog, and you can tell whether or not it was if the behavior keeps on happening. If the behavior keep- doesn't happen anymore, then you have effectively punished it, but we haven't got to punishment yet. Um, and I think that that tends to happen a lot. So if there's something that your dog is doing that keeps happening that you don't like, you need to figure out how is that behavior being reinforced and if it's being positively reinforced, that means that something uh, is being added that is encouraging the behavior. It's also important to think about the fact that you know, what's, what might positively reinforce a behavior for one person might not be positively reinforcing to someone else which is why it's important to know what's rewarding to your subject. But basically, you know, just putting one foot in front of the other. If you put one foot in front of the other and it makes you go forward, then that behavior has been positively reinforced and you're more likely to take another step. It can be that simple and that minor. Oh, okay, got to two and a half minutes. Next up is negative reinforcement. So negative you're taking something away reinforcement in order to encourage the likelihood that a behavior is going to happen again. And this can be a tricky one to think about but I think um, a good example in human life is the beeping noise that uh, you hear in your car when you don't have your seatbelt on. Uh, you put your seatbelt on and the beeping noise goes away. So Basically, the behavior of putting on seatbelt is encouraged because it makes the annoying thing, the bad thing, go away. Um, you wake up in the morning uh, because your alarm goes off and you smack it to make it stop. Um, but you have gotten up uh, because it has made the annoying thing, the sound of the alarm, go away. You have a headache. You take a pill makes the headache go away, the behavior of taking the pill is encouraged because it makes the bad headache go away. I had a client once who said, well, can you give me an example of how you would use negative reinforcement with a dog and I said no I can't because I would need to be putting my dog in a situation where he'd be experiencing something bad or would be experiencing some kind of pain and then I'd need to make it stop and that's not something I would want to do to a dog but there are trainers who train using negative reinforcement by for example pinching a dog's ear until the dog drops something that's using negative reinforcement or Shocking a dog via shock collar until the dog sits. That's another way that people often use negative reinforcement In my dog's life uh, There was one time uh, where I saw negative reinforcement um, Affecting him although I wasn't using it on him on purpose. He got stuck under my uncle's porch and he was Shrieking he was really scared uncomfortable. He managed to get out through a small hole on the side of the porch and i would say that's an instance of negative reinforcement that uh in the future were he ever again to get stuck under the porch the behavior of exiting in that one small spot uh would probably occur again because it made the bad thing of being under the porch go away all right now we uh, now we are going to go to the other side of the axis uh, and talk about punishment or discouraging behavior. All right? Let me set my timer again. Okay, let's start with positive punishment. Positive punishment is very strangely uh, termed thing because you know positive sounds like it's something good, but again, we're thinking about positive in terms of. Uh, math here. So we're adding something to the equation in order to punish it, in order to discourage the likelihood that a behavior is going to happen again. Um, so if I punch you, I am adding my fist to the equation of your face in order to discourage you from doing whatever it is you just did. Although again, like I talked about when I was talking about positive reinforcement, you have to think about what is punishing, what is punishing to your Subject because some people might like being punched in the face. But basically, whenever you are doing something that is causing discomfort, causing pain, um, causing anything disliked by your dog or or whatever animal you're working with um in order to keep them from doing something you are effectively using punishment but like i mentioned with positive reinforcement i think there's a big mistake that people make a lot of the time where they think they're punishing an animal when they are actually positively reinforcing it um they think they're punishing it the the animal by yelling or by whatever um But, you know, if you actually look at whether or not the behavior is continuing, you can tell whether or not it has been reinforced or punished. If it has been punished effectively, the behavior should happen less and less and less to the point uh, of it not happening at all. There are a couple really big problems with using punishment. One is that animals tend to become desensitized to punishment. So you have to make your punishment uh, greater and greater. I know I experienced this as a little kid. I used to get spanked. And at some point, uh, I just didn't really care about being spanked anymore. And I would say, what are you going to do, spank me? And, you know, that's, you know, what what my, what were my parents going to do, they're going to start beating me. Another is that, you know, when we're trying to use punishment, we often lead dogs to make the wrong association. So, you know, you yell at your dog when you come in and see that your shoes are, sh- your shoes are chewed up, but your dog now thinks he has been punished for. Oh, I'm done. I'm almost done with what I was going to say. <laughs> your dog thinks he's been um, punished for running up to you uh, when that was not what you were going for. So, those are just some of the problems I've encountered with um, seeing people attempt to use punishment with their dog you think you're punishing your dog for one thing but your dog might have a totally different idea about what you're punishing your dog for another thing and i know i'm over my time now (laughs) but these are my rules i'm gonna break them god damn it um is uh i know in my life i can remember punishments that i've received a lot more than i can remember what i was being punished for and again that comes down to uh your dog making what might be a bad association because he's making the association of the punishment with the punisher um, and might that memory might loom much larger in your dog's mind than uh, remembering whatever the behavior was that he was punished for that he shouldn't be doing anymore okay last but not least we have negative punishment let me reset my timer here I'm gonna give myself two minutes on this one instead of two and a half because I went a little bit over on the last one. All right, negative punishment. We are taking something away in order to discourage a behavior. Um, Human example of negative punishment um, would be grounding a kid. You're taking away their freedom, their car keys, whatever in order to discourage uh, the behavior of you know, staying out too late or whatever it was. Um, what's interesting about negative punishment is there are these crisscrosses that happen. So if you're using positive reinforcement, you are probably going to end up using some <laughs> negative punishment, um, even if you're not meaning to. And same thing with the other crisscross of positive punishment and negative reinforcement. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say you're playing what we call the elevator game that's an example of a place where you are using negative punishment the elevator game is when you're you start to put a food bowl down while your dog's butt is on the ground, and if your dog's butt starts to come up before the food bowl is all the way on the ground, you start standing up again. You're taking away the food in order to discourage the behavior of standing up, um, but then you're bringing the food back down when your dog sits again. So you're at that point you're using. Uh, positive reinforcement so there's sort of like a, a back and forth that's always happening in life um, another example would be you know your dog jumps up up on you and you turn your back on the dog you're taking yourself away from the dog in order to discourage jumping but then you turn around again in order to uh, reinforce the dog when your dog is not sitting so then you're using positive reinforcement and in the other direction you know that like alarm clock example i gave you know you are getting up uh because it makes the sound of the alarm stop so that is negative reinforcement the behavior of you getting up is encouraged uh but the behavior of you sleeping is oh finished the behavior of you sleeping Uh, is discouraged is punished because of the thing that's added this the annoying sound of the alarm clock so you can see there's always like a seesaw arrangement that's happening when you're thinking about reinforcement and punishment and uh, the direction we're always trying to go towards is using uh, positive reinforcement and negative punishment rather than negative reinforcement and positive punishment all right i did it Operant Conditioning explained in about 10 minutes. Uh, And uh, in lieu of a whiff shout out um, or a uh, fun dog fact today, I wanted to just take a couple minutes to respond to some comments I got on a couple recent episodes. Although... um, I think that actually I know that the people who uh, sent me these comments didn't actually listen to the podcasts that they were commenting on they were just responding to the descriptions of the podcast so I doubt that they will listen to my response here but nevertheless uh, I thought I would offer up some thoughts on these things the first um, the first uh, comment I wanted to respond to was from um, A cousin of mine who I haven't heard from in years I didn't hear from this person when I got married when my father died when I had a baby nothing 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 and then uh I won't say if it's a he or she but this person um saw something about the episode that I did about um oh about Marie Kondo and I got I, I got a couple of really negative responses from people who said that they had no interest in listening to my episode because they were so disgusted by the description of the episode. Uh, fair enough. Um, this is just one that I thought I would read. But most of them were saying um, – well, actually, not true. I got two kinds of responses. One kind of response was saying basically how dare I um, – Say anything bad about Caesar Milan, who is mentioned in that episode, and also that um, I was uh, taking a, a Western view of Marie Kondo, whose um, practices were are rooted in ancient Japanese tradition. Um which I I am taking a Western point of view because I am from the West and um, and I if as anyone who listens to the episode knows, I actually think Marie Kondo is great in so many ways. Um, the point of that episode was talking about a lot of the superstitious things that she does. And you know, at Clicker Expo, I heard somebody talk about, um, the episode of Friends where Phoebe thinks that she's controlling the TV, the, the TV power with uh, by blinking her eyes when it's actually Monica on the other side of the room playing with the light switch. That's a good example of uh, superstitious behaviors that people think are linked to uh, a behavior that really has nothing to do with anything. Anyway, um My criticism of Marie Kondo was about her suggesting that you talk to your books and uh, your clothes, etc. And um, the criticism that I got from this cousin uh, touches on that too. This cousin wrote, um, Just wonder if making the religious renounce their beliefs because empirically Moses could not part the Red Sea is necessarily important. If your goal is to help people train their dogs and enable both to have enriched experiences that they are willing to pay you for, then I'm not sure you have to dispel all the woo. Energy, as Caesar puts it, is an adequate and not wholly inaccurate way to describe the communication between human and dog. This is what animals, us included, tune into. And yes, energy can be described as a bunch of physical and chemical mechanisms, but the simplification still resonates. All right. So anyway, I wrote this cousin back and I said, thanks a lot for telling me <laughs> how I should be a dog trainer who's going to get people to pay her when you haven't reached out to me for any other reason in my life in a decade. But, you know, as far as whether it's Cesar Milan talking about energy or Marie Kondo talking about um, speaking to your clothing or or Moses parting the Red Sea, first of all, Let's well. Let's talk about Murray Kondo and Moses first. I don't think it's bad to um, do these things. There's certainly nothing wrong with believing that Moses parted the Red Sea or that you need to talk to your socks. Um, my my or or any anything you know. He he mentions religion. Anything that makes you feel good, whether it's eating the body of Christ or. Uh, you know, snipping off the tip of your baby's penis or, you know, lots of things people do in the name of religion, which could be called superstitious. I'm not really judging as much as I'm saying that these are not the most effective ways to change behavior. And, um, you know, talking about energy, sort of like the same thing. Um, If you think about the principle of parsimony or oxen's razor, you know, we're trying to find the simplest answer to questions. We're trying to, in this case, talk about changing behavior with by taking the fewest assumptions, sort of taking the most direct path. And uh, I believe that an understanding of the science of behavior and understanding operant conditioning and understanding classical conditioning and uh, in the law, laws of learning um, are just a clearer path that involve fewer assumptions than attributing behavior change to energy which could be defined differently from one person to another and another thing when you think about learning so much learning has nothing to do with anyone i mean i mean of course you learn from a book for example and or you learn from an online class and are you learning because of the energy that was infused in that book or the energy of the person teaching the class I mean I I don't think so but even beyond that all animals learn how to live in their environment or I mean animals that have survived and flourished Um, uh, all animals have learned how to adapt to their environment and how to do what works and how to not do what doesn't work. And all of that doesn't have to do with the energy of a teacher. Uh, The teacher is the environment. Anyway, that's my short response to those um, criticisms which I received. And honestly, what I regret is that my descriptions of the episodes were um, so off-putting to these people that they didn't listen to the episodes at all. Uh, that certainly <laughs> doesn't do the job of a description, which should be enticing. So my um, the behavior of <laughs> writing descriptions in that way, I guess, has now been punished, and I will be less likely to do that again in the future. Um, the other episode that I got some comments about um, was the episode I did recently where I interviewed uh, Sherry Mahone, owner of River Valley Doodles. I had some people who wrote me in disgust saying that they couldn't believe I was doing anything to promote breeding. And this is something I could talk a lot more about, but I just wanted to say something brief about um, how we get dogs into our lives. I do think that going to a shelter Uh, Is the best way to get a dog right now and those who listen to the episode uh, will note that sherry said the very same thing but that said we we should aspire to a time where there are no dogs in shelters uh, which would require um, you know a big spay neuter effort which is happening but dogs are still going to mate and if dogs are going to mate and people are still going to want to have dogs in their lives i think that it's worth thinking about how we can um produce dogs who are healthy and are raised in the right way and um don't have genetic predispositions that are going to uh cause problems and break the hearts of the people who love them later on and um yeah, and, and they should be going into homes that are vetted by uh, people who who care about the long-term well-being of the dogs. So ideally, yes, I think we should get all dogs out of shelters, but I think that in tandem we should also be thinking about uh were are if we ever are going to achieve that goal it's good that there are people now who are working on figuring out how to breed dogs that are healthy that are uh, that have um genetics that are that are good that are being tested that are not too inbred um and uh Sherry is someone who's an example of a breeder who's really putting in The work to create dogs that um, are going to be great pets and that are going into good homes. So while I am all for uh, rescue and going to shelters and working with rescue groups, if you're looking for a dog, I also um, am a big supporter of people like Sherry who are breeding dogs, specifically breeding mixed breed dogs. She breeds uh, doodle mixes and who are doing it uh, in all the right ways. If you would like to positively reinforce the behavior of me doing this podcast, I would love it if you would leave a review on iTunes, tell your friends, uh, post in uh, Instagram stories or in your feed or on Facebook that you're enjoying this so that more people can learn about it. Um, that would all be great, would certainly uh, be rewarding to me. And uh, as always, I, I really appreciate everyone who reaches out via email or on DM and Instagram. Um, if you have any questions about dog training, uh, you can email podcast at schoolforthedogs.com or um, you can call and leave a message, 917 414 2625. I will definitely try to answer your question and uh, put it in an upcoming Q&A episode. Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by telling your friends about it, leaving a review, or shopping in our online store. You can learn more about us and sign up to get lots of free training resources when you visit us online at schoolforthedogs.com.